Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today I want to do something a little different. Um, I uh, Instead of interviewing someone, I'm going to read a little bit of my own writing and sort of have a spoken verbal essay of sorts. And I want to tie together a few things that I've written previously on the theme of friendship. And so if you've listened to previous episodes of this show, you will know that I have a weekly newsletter uh, called Friendship Friday. And the idea is to talk about uh, you know, different strategies that I have tried recently uh, and, and my thoughts about them for connecting more successfully with other people. So connecting with more people and connecting uh, more deeply with them. I believe that this is something that's rather difficult in adult life. And um, certainly many, feel, many people feel the same way. And uh, it's something that people talk about relatively little in terms of psychologically how to do it better, right? We spend a lot of time talking about success and romantic relationships and productivity, uh, but really psychology in, for the general uh, population has overlooked a lot of really what is one of the most fundamental topics of our everyday existence, and that's friendship. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give this a shot, and if you like the format of it, please do send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. So uh, go ahead and send me a message, and uh, you can also check out my website, which is where you can subscribe to the newsletter, and um, uh, I revamped it a little bit, so let me know if you like the format there. Anyway, I'm going to give this a shot, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, so the first essay that I'd like to read is one that I wrote in October of 2018 for Psychology Today, and it is called, Which is Better, More Friends or Closer Friends? There is a quote from the Stoic philosopher Seneca which frames this debate. When a person spends all of her time in foreign travel, she ends by having many acquaintances, but no friends. And the same must hold true of people who seek intimate acquaintance with no single author, but visit them all in a hasty and hurried manner. It's clear that Seneca believes two things here. First, Seneca believes that having lots of friends is anti-correlated with having close friends. This assumption makes sense if you think that social resources are finite. For example, If you have 10 hours to spend time with friends this week, you can either allocate those 10 hours among 10 different friends, or spend it all with one single friend. Assuming that friendship is a function of the amount of time you spend with somebody, you're going to cultivate a closer relationship with the one person than you would with any of the 10. Seneca's second belief is that it is more valuable to have friends that are close rather than numerous. Seneca has his opinion But which is really better, more friends or closer friends? In the corner opposite Seneca, supporting more friends, is a theory from the sociologist Mark Granovetter. In his landmark paper on the strength of weak ties, Granovetter makes the claim that the economic value of one's social network is not in the number of close friends you have, but in the number of arm's-length acquaintances. It's the weak ties that matter, not the strong ties. Granovetter's argument centers around the idea that people who you are really close to, your strong ties, 
share much of the same social and professional sphere that you do. They are unlikely to introduce you to new ideas or new job opportunities or any sort of information that you wouldn't already be likely to come across without their help. Weak ties, on the other hand, are not generally part of the same world. They have different jobs, specializations, college majors, friend groups of their own, and are a part of environments from which you could potentially learn. Strong ties make the world smaller. Weak ties make it bigger. A bigger world may mean a world with more opportunities, but it goes without saying that economic gain is not the only standard by which to judge a potential relationship. Backing up Seneca, coming down squarely on the side of closer friends, is a theory by anthropologist Robin Dunbar, commonly known by the shorthand of Dunbar's number. Dunbar's theory, argued in his 1991 paper on neocortex size as a constraint on group size in primates, is that there are fundamental limits to the number of people that a human, or a chimp for that matter, can know well. These limits are cognitive. Our social minds can only handle so much social information before getting overloaded. Dunbar's number is most often quoted at 150, specifying, in Dunbar's words, the number of people you would not feel embarrassed about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them at a bar. This is supposed to be the optimal group size if you want everyone to know everyone else pretty well and it can be extrapolated to suggest that this is also pretty close to the limit of one's social groups. That is, only about 150 of your Facebook friends are people you really care about. There is a corollary of sorts to Dunbar's number. You can think of it as Dunbar's concentric circles. Not all close friends are created equal. Some of those 150 friends you care about are going to be closer than others. There are also loose cognitive limits on these various inner circles of friends as well. Jesus' disciples are a good example of this. In the first circle were his three closest confidants, Peter, James, and John, his best friends, so to speak. Then there was his inner circle of twelve disciples. These were people with whom he was certainly close, but each one to a greater or lesser degree. Judas betrayed him, after all. Then there is a passage in Luke Luke 10 specifically, where he sends out 72 disciples to go ahead of him to places he planned to visit. These were presumably people he knew and trusted, though not as well as the 12. Note the numbers within Dunbar's 150. Then there's the story of Jesus feeding the multitude with loaves of bread and fish, supposed to number 5,000, well beyond the number that he would have known personally. So what should you do with your 10 hours of social time? It is better to divide it among 10 friends, as Granovetter suggests, or allocate it to a single one in alignment with Dunbar. On the one hand, it does seem to be the case that the economic value of a social network increases with more friends. On the other hand, perhaps this brings down the likelihood that you'll be especially close to any of those friends, with each of them vying for the resources of your social attention. What is more certain than a definitive answer is that any particular individual will have a sense of how they personally cultivate friendships. But as the quote above suggests, Seneca isn't actually making a point about friendships. He is using friendships as a metaphor to drive his argument about the authors you should read. It is essentially the same problem. Should you read more authors or focus on developing better knowledge of a few? He claims that it is more important to digest the works 
of a selective few master thinkers, affording yourself the ability to see the world the same way they see it, rather than meeting, reading many different authors and not knowing any single one of them intimately. In this sense, Seneca is likely correct, as Granovetter's weak ties argument about economic viability doesn't apply to authors. They don't become part of your social network after you read their work. However, you can incorporate a deep understanding of their worldview into your own, a process compatible with Dunbar's concentric circles. There are, like Jesus' disciples, the ones with whom you're closest and know all their work intimately, followed by another circle of close familiarity all the way up to those you don't know and are willing to read a little more than an internet article by them. But whether or not you agree with Seneca's contention, it follows that we should be as deliberate about choosing the authors we engage as the friendships we cultivate. All right, so I'm just going to jump ahead into the next one here, uh, and it is a piece that I titled The Violation of Love Languages. There is a famous book in the relationship self-help genre called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. The Five Love Languages is a perennial seller and has made its way around the internet as a quiz. The book is based on what psychologists call a model. It's a way of categorizing things that seems useful, whether or not those categories actually represent real things. There are two mainstays of Chapman's model. The first is that there are different love languages, touch, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, and acts of service. The second is that each person has a primary love language, the means through which they feel most directly loved. One person might care a lot about hearing that they're doing a good job, words of affirmation, where another person might care a lot about knowing someone carved time out of their busy day to spend time together, quality time. While everyone is going to appreciate any positive act directed their way to some extent, love languages are a good way to put your finger on what's going to matter most. One misconception about love languages is that they're about how a person expresses love. While you can certainly think about them in this way, Chapman goes to pains in his book to stress that they're about the way a person feels loved. The point is not to figure out how you most conveniently and effortlessly express love, but how to make your partner feel most valued. If such a mismatch between love languages that goes identified, it can be a major source of tension in a relationship. When what, you, when what makes your partner feel most valued doesn't come naturally to you, simply having a label to put on that discrepancy can make an improvement. But there's another thing which has gone underappreciated about love languages. It's a sort of corollary to Chapman's model. Your primary love language is not only the most direct way to make you feel loved. It is also your biggest vulnerability. It's where you are most exposed for someone to hurt you. Take touch, for instance. Touch is relatively low on my personal ranking of love languages. That means that touch simply does not matter all that much to me. If someone I love expresses their feelings through touch, then I'm unlikely to be as sensitive to it as if they did so through quality time, my primary love language. But the flip side is that it's difficult to make me uncomfortable through touch. If someone I don't know gets overly touchy, it's not especially unpleasant for me. It isn't something that I'm going to be circling back to throughout the day and marinating in the uneasiness of that social interaction. That's not true for the people I know who touch is their primary love language. Unwanted touch makes them really disconcerted. 
I'm much more sensitive to quality time. The most efficient way to hurt my feelings is to plan to spend time together and then bail at the last minute. Planning to spend time with someone is something I take seriously. For me, committing a spot on my calendar to someone is a demonstration that I care enough to give them the one thing I can't get back, time. But not everyone is as sensitive to quality time as I am, just as I'm not sensitive to touch. Chapman's five love languages aren't just useful because they describe a strategy for making people feel good. They are outlines of the qualities we are most sensitive to in social interactions. And as such, they can go both ways. They can make us feel deeply loved, or they can make us feel despised. One of the reasons that Chapman's model has been so successful is that it gives us something to aim for, and not just a single target, but five of them. Instead of getting bogged down in the abstract dictum to make your partner feel appreciated, love languages are something more concrete that we can put into practice. More than that, they allow us to be tuned into our partner's unique sensitivities. Love languages sketch an answer to why they may feel undervalued, even when we perceive that we're expressing their worth. But we also need to be cognizant of the opposite effect. Knowing someone's love language is like learning their true name, a motif in many of the world's folklore traditions. It may give you an insight to who they are deep down, but it also gives you power over them, which can be used for better or for worse. Okay, and so the last one that I want to read today is a piece that I titled, When Should a Conversation End? People have remarkably consistent expectations about how long things should go on for. For example, right now on Spotify's chart for the top global tracks, the lengths of the top five songs are 327, 332, 216, 312, and 3 minutes and 30 seconds long. How long should a pop song be? About 3 minutes and 30 seconds, give or take. Here's another example. How long should a good fiction book be? The top five most read fiction books on Amazon this week are 400, 417, 464, 322, and 815. This last one is a Harry Potter book, but the next two non-Harry Potter books are 417 and 379. Answer, about 400 pages, unless it's part of a well-established series. What do you think would be the result if I looked at the same trend for movies? Just south of two hours, right? We have these lengths pretty much down to a science. So here's an example that's at least as prevalent in our social lives, but much more difficult to answer. How long should a conversation be? Emerging research by Harvard Dream Team, Adam Mastroianni, Sage Young Gun, and Dan Gilbert, Spry Old Guard, explores this issue. Their experimental paradigm? Lock two people in a room and see how long they converse before asking to be let out. What they found, people have no idea how long the other person wants to talk for. Of course, how long two people decide to talk for depends a lot on how long they expect to talk for going in. The technical term psychologists use to describe this expectation is a prior, as in your belief about how long conversations go in general prior to knowing anything specific about this particular conversation. Previous research by cognitive scientists Tom Griffiths and Josh Tenenbaum showed that people's prior expectations are rather well-defined across a range of issues. 
People expect movies to be mostly just about 110 minutes, with a few going longer than two hours, but almost none going shorter than 90 minutes. They expect poems usually to be a few lines long, but allow that some can go into the thousands. They expect that the majority of cake recipes call for precisely 60 minutes in the oven. And they even expect the reign of most Egyptian pharaohs to have lasted on the order of only a few years. Furthermore, Griffiths and Tenenbaum show that these prior expectations have a significant influence on people's predictions about how long something will last for, even when you give someone information about how long it's gone on for so far. For example, they asked, if your friend read you her favorite line of poetry and told you it was line five of a poem, what would you predict for the total length of the poem? The typical respondent might say 10 or 20 lines. They even asked such ponderous questions as, if you opened a book about the history of ancient Egypt to a page listing the reigns of the pharaohs, and noticed that at 4000 BC, a particular pharaoh had been ruling for 11 years, what would you predict for the total duration of his reign? Master Rihanna and Gilbert played out this kind of scenario in the lab. Instead of asking them how long they think it will go, their participants were allowed to decide for themselves when to stop. They paired people up and asked them to talk. When they mutually agreed to terminate the conversation, the experimenters asked them a couple follow-up questions. Then they were on their way. In a poster at a recent meeting of Society for Judgment and Decision Making, they reported that only 15% of people left the conversation when they actually wanted to. The average conversation lasted just under 30 minutes. If you had asked me beforehand, I would have predicted that this was longer than anyone wanted to talk. As it turned out, about half of the participants wanted to leave earlier, and half wanted the conversation to keep going when their interlocutor suggested they stop. If you wanted to stop early, you wanted the conversation only to go about half as long as it did. If you wanted to keep going, you wanted the conversation to keep going for about twice as long as it did. One partner thought they were reading Animal Farm. The other was ready to plunge into the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. Part of the reason for the mismatch was that no one else knew what the other person wanted. When people tried to guess what their partner had wanted, they really had no idea. We may have a pretty strong understanding of how long we want something to go on for, but it seems like we're not as successful in extending that understanding to include other people. Further compounding the issue, people had no idea that they had no idea about their partner's expectations. My guess would be that this is because people were basing their estimates of how long the conversation should go more on their prior expectations than on any of their partner's conversational cues. Mastroianni and Gilbert's findings have profound and immediately implementable societal implications. We need to be clear with other people when we're done talking to them. We don't know how long they want to talk for. They don't know how long we want to talk for. And the two parties likely have different expectations anyway. Let's just accept that and be more clear with our interlocutors about when we're ready to move on to the next activity. Alright, so that was just a little experiment to try something different. You know, part of it was out of necessity, and that, to be honest, I've fallen a little bit behind on my interview schedule. 
in a way that hasn't quite come up yet in this podcast. I will hopefully get on track uh, there in the next couple weeks. But this is also something that I've wanting to uh, uh, have the opportunity to try. And the, the idea is that uh, I would like to have other formats in which my writing can be available. And sometimes it's nice to read something. Sometimes it's nice to listen to something. And it's, it's certainly something that I would like to work on and get better. Uh, but no doubt it will increase the reach of some of the things that I have already done, uh, uh, which I think might be of merit, especially if there is a connecting thread there. So at any rate, if you appreciated these pieces uh, and enjoyed uh, enjoyed this show, I would love to hear from you. Go ahead and uh, send me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com if you have any critical feedback or things that you liked or things that you thought could be improved. I'd love to hear from you on that. Uh, And then also, uh, if you enjoyed this, then go ahead and sign up for my newsletter, Friendship Friday. Uh, in which I cover practical strategies for making deeper and longer lasting connections with the people in your life. Uh, you can find that on my website, codycommerce.com uh, slash newsletter. So um, thanks for taking a listen this week, and I will be back uh, with a new interview starting next week. Mm-hmm.